Uh, scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. In the Blue Bible, it can be found on page 887. Again, the text is Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, found on page 887 in the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an, al an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, had not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Thank you, Bob. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we um this morning we ask that you would send your spirit to give us eyes that see and ears that hear, hearts that receive and understand. Father, forgive my many sins. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you this morning, what, uh, what sins do you find easiest to criticize? What sins do you find most ready to condemn? What things, what wrongs? You have people in your life, perhaps, whom you, you really get angry with. Maybe specific family members or, or former friends or coworkers or people that you know, and immediately you can just get animated and angry and upset about what they have done. I don't know about you, but for me, it's it's the sins that I don't struggle with myself, right? It's the sins that I look at and think, I, I don't struggle with that. That's, that's weird. I mean, what's wrong with you? 
right? Often the sins that we're most ready to condemn are the ones that we ourselves have have not done yet, <laughs> right? Once we do it, it's like, okay, well, that's not so bad, right? That's understandable, right? I can remember sitting across from a friend of mine who um, had a very uh, um, close relationship with his girlfriend. In fact, they decided to move in together. They, um, they had a, a child together, and they had been together probably three, four years when she, I think they were going through some relational difficulties, and she up and decided to leave him, and she took uh, their son and left and, took, and went and lived with her parents and basically said, I don't want to see you ever again. You can't see your son ever again. It's over. And that man was so filled with, understandably, with anger, with bitterness, just with a sense of, I mean, I remember him saying to me, he says, who does that? Who would take their, our child and just, just leave and never let me? Say, who would ever do that? The sense of this person has done something that I could never do. I mean, yeah, I have lots of sin, lots of issues, but I would never actually do that. Again, so often the sins that we find most ready to condemn, most ready to critique, are the ones that we ourselves don't struggle with. So, for example, maybe we're in good shape. We're in great shape, and we look at someone who struggles with obesity, being overweight, and we think, why can't they just stop eating? I mean, is it really that hard? Just stop eating. Just go to the gym. I mean, what's... Right? Or maybe we're, very, we're very just naturally very relaxed people. We just chill. And we look at people who struggle with anxiety. We think, why can't they just stop freaking out? Right? Just calm down. And we think it's so simple. It's just, or perhaps we're very committed. We're loyal. We're faithful people. Like, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And we look at someone who start, who's committed adultery. We look at someone who's been faithful and we think, how could they ever do that? That is so unforgivable. Or maybe we're empaths, right? We're just very empathetic. We can understand people. We can see, we can, we can walk in people's shoes. And then we see someone who's insensitive, like chronically just doesn't care. And we think, where's your heart, Right? How can you be so cold-hearted? How can you be so judgmental? And we judge the person who's judging, right? Again, we're quickest to judge the sins that we don't struggle with ourselves. And that's very relevant to this. I want to talk today, obviously, about this issue of homosexuality. And I want to do so um, because we can often look and say, look at someone and say, how can you struggle in that way? In fact, population-wise, the statistics vary. But persons who are exclusively attracted to their own sex is somewhere between 1% and 2%. Uh, persons who are you know, bisexual, who are attracted to, to, to both or to, to a spectrum, it's a it's little broader. But generally speaking, if that's the, those really are the numbers, 1% or 2%, you think about how small a, per, a part of the population that is, so that it's very possible that, especially as, as, as believers, as Christians, we may not interact very much with persons who or same-sex attracted, or who are gay, or whatever word that you want to use. But I want to ask this question this morning. What about Jesus? See, we are quickest to judge the sins that we don't struggle with ourselves. But what about him? See, in our call to worship this morning, let me just mention this briefly. So if you have your bulletin, grab that call to worship. Twice it mentions God's compassion. 
It mentions that God forgives all our sins and is gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And again, I mentioned obesity, I mentioned anxiety, I mentioned adultery, I mentioned insensitivity. But what about homosexuality? And the reason you may ask me, wait a minute, this is your first Sunday back, why are you, why are you talking about this? And the reason why I'm talking about it, this is an occasion, is because um, this, this as a denomination, this past summer, in our General Assembly, a number of leaders met, and they, they discussed a number of issues around homosexuality, passed some various overtures, etc. And I wanted to take a little bit of time this morning to, to broach this issue with you. See, for some of us, this may be a no-brainer, right? In fact, it may seem strange to talk about this issue in a church setting. I mean, what could be more divisive, right? What, could, what issue could there be in the church today where two opposing sides could be more sure of themselves, right? For some of us, perhaps this morning, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it's what does the Bible say? Case closed, end of discussion. But for others of us, it's also a no-brainer, but in a different way. We're saying, like, look, get out of the Middle Ages. Get out of your homophobia. Get out of your bigotry. And you have family, you have friends, close friends, who are gay. And we think, how could this possibly be wrong? So what do we do? Where do we go? Well, we we look to Jesus. In this text that, that Bob read for us, we find two responses to sin. First is what I'm going to call a blind condemnation. And the second is a beautiful compassion. Okay, so first, we look in at, look at verse 39. We're going to see a, a blind condemnation. We read this. Uh, Luke writes, when the, Pharisees who had invited, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, when he saw this woman doing what she was doing to Jesus, right? When he, 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 he said to himself, if this man, that is, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. Now think about it. This is an amazing thing. This is in a, a highly religious society. And here is a man in a public setting with a woman directly behind him. He's lying down at, at, uh, at, you know, they would have been lying down all of, um, together. And she's behind him. And she is actually in various ways touching him. Which is just, again, and she says, if this man knew what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now let me ask you this question. Is the religious leader wrong? Is she a sinner? Look at verse 37. How does verse 37 describe her? It says that she's, quote, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life. Her life had indeed, let's not miss this, this her life had indeed been a series of serious failings. And everyone in that town knew it. They all knew it. She was the talk of the town. And let's not dismiss, let's not minimize these. Maybe she had broken up marriages. Maybe she, who knows? I mean, maybe she had done things that, I mean, that were truly sinful. Things that you're just going to go, ah, it's no big deal. It's very understandable. You're like, I can't believe she did that. Everyone knows that she has made an entire wreck of her life, ruining her life and ruining others. So is he wrong? He's not wrong, is he? 
But is he right? Look at verses 40 through 43. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> right? Tell me, teacher, he said. It's interesting. He calls Jesus teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and understand a denarius is about a day's wage. So think about it, 500 days of wages. That's a lot of money. I and mean, let's say that you make 60 grand a year. That's about a year and a half worth. That's 90 grand. So when two people owed a, a, a money, lend, sorry, money to a money lender, one owed him around 80 or $90,000, and the other owed him 50, 10, you know, 10%, so eight or 9,000, which is still consequential. Right? But eight or nine thousand dollars, you could probably, you know, you could swallow that. But like ninety or a hundred thousand, somewhere in that neighborhood, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt given forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned, now listen to this. Then he turned toward the woman. Right? He turned toward the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, what, what, is, what, is, what is Jesus asking? Why does he ask that question? Simon, do you see this woman? He's saying, look, Simon, there's far more to this woman than you know. You see her only as a category Sinner, pick your sin. Adulterer, addict, workaholic, hothead, cheapskate, negative Nancy, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is that's so sinful, right? They, you see her as a category. And then he, points to what she, and then he points out what she's done in contrast to the religious leader. Look in verses 45 and following. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she... She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered in, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But, wh but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Let me ask you, this is so important. When, you, when, you, um, when someone has done something wrong that you think is just terrible, that you think is unconscionable, what do you see and why? This is the first key point I want to make this morning. Jesus would have us see everyone with commendation and compassion. He would have us see everyone with commendation and compassion. What do I mean by commendation? We commend people. We see them for the ways that the wonderful way in which God has made them. Jesus commends the woman. See what she's done. See the, the, the good aspects of her life. Look how she is treating me right now. And then compassion. Jesus is kind to the woman. He says, Your sins are forgiven. Now listen, when I mean commendation, I mean this, that God doesn't make junk. The psalmist says, Psalm 139, verse 14, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Or perhaps better translated, we each are wondrously set apart. 
We're each distinct with these amazing snowflakes. There's no one like us, made in God's image. And so commendation is the ability to look at someone who is deeply flawed, deeply broken, deeply straying, deeply uh, wounding others, and still see how God has made them. It's to commend them. Okay? And then only commending, but it's only commendation, but compassion. Where is compassion? Compassion involves and invests itself in the plight of another. You just go, wow, they're, they're a mess. What a disaster. It, it, compassion is, takes the risk to actually wade in, to swim in, and actually participate and take on the, the struggle, the mess, the disaster of the person that we're seeing. That's a risky business. How many of you have ever seen a swimmer um, start to drown? Or have ever, like, know what that phenomenon is like? When you, when you wade out to a swimmer who's drowning, do you just reason with them? You like, hey, right? You just got to just do this, whatever, right? Well, what's going to happen? You go out to them, what are they going to do? What do they do? They're going to grab you, and they're going to climb up you, and they're going to push you under, right? So much so that, and this is, I don't know, don't quote me on this. I've, I've heard, so it was said, that there are actually even circumstances where a trained lifeguard or trained persons will actually uh, knock out a drowning swimmer in the right circumstance, right? That's, I don't know, I mean, you don't quote me on that, but I mean, it's like, in order to rescue you, I've got to literally knock you out, right? So the point here is that c- compassion is scary. Right? And it's just better to go stay out and stay dry, right? But Jesus is calling us to a commendation and a compassion. Jesus will go and die for that woman's sins. He will pay the price for all of her wrongs. So let me ask you, do we struggle to do this with gay persons? Christian, non-Christian, I don't care. Do we struggle? Do we look at the category of homosexuality and go, you know, it's just gross. I just don't like it. Just do this. Now, I'm going to send out an email uh, later, early this, early this week, and it'll have um, a number of things about what we're talking about today, but I'll include a link to an article written several years ago in the Huffington Post by a young gay journalist, a guy named Michael Hobbs. And it's called, listen to this, the name of this article, Together Alone, the Epidemic of Gay Loneliness. Hobbes writes, quote, the gay community has made more progress on legal and social acceptance than any other demographic group in history. Now, whether or not you agree or disagree with that is beside the point. He's saying, we have come so far. He's writing as a 34-year-old. And he's still, even as we celebrate the scale and speed of this change, listen to this, the rates of depression, loneliness, and substance in the gay community remain stuck in the same place they've been for decades. Gay people are now, depending on the study, between two and ten times more likely than straight people to take their own lives. We are twice as likely to have a major depressive episode. And just like the last epidemic we lived through, he's talking about the the, the AIDS epidemic, the trauma appears to be concentrated among men. In a survey of gay men who recently arrived in New York City, three-quarters suffered from anxiety or depression. 
three-quarters abused drugs or alcohol, and were having risky sex or some combination of the three. Despite all the talk of our chosen families, gay men have fewer close friends than straight people or gay women. In a survey of care providers at HIV clinics, one respondent told researchers, listen to this, it's not a question of them not knowing how to save their lives. It's a question of them knowing if their lives are worth saving. Now he continues, I'm not going to pretend to be objective about any of this. I'm a perpetually single gay guy who was raised in a bright blue city by PFLAG parents. I've never known anyone who died of AIDS. I've never experienced direct discrimination. And I came out of the closet in a world where marriage, a picket fence, and a golden retriever were, just, were, were not just feasible, but, but expected. I've also been in and out of therapy more times than I've downloaded and deleted Grindr. He's saying, I am hurting. And it's epidemic. So regardless of whether or not you may think this is right or wrong, do you think compassion is in order? So again, Jesus would have us see, see everyone with both commendation and compassion. Now, but why is this so difficult? Especially when it comes to sexual sin. Why is it so difficult to have compassion? Well, let me just, let me lead to a second point here. The second point is this. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture that urges that we define ourselves by our sexuality. Imagine for a moment three circles, all right? And each of those circles is a way of seeing ourselves in relation to sex. Our culture today would say that most of that circle, most of that pie, three-fourths of that pie is your sexuality. Like who you are sexually is a big deal. And that's how you should identify with yourself. And it's especially true if you are gay. You ask anyone about this, you say, hey, how important, or how much of your self-identity is informed by your, your, your sexuality? And the answer is like most of it, or a big part of it. And our, sexu- our culture today is encouraging that. And now imagine a second pie that looks exactly the same. That's many of our, ch- our religious communities. Today. Many churches today also think of humans as primarily sexual creatures insofar as if you commit a sexual sin, what? You're, it's over for you. The scarlet letter A. Right? Or maybe today it's the pink letter G, right? You can't be gay. You can't, be, you can't be, have any sexual brokers in your life because sex is everything. It's all what it's all about. And then there's a third category, a third circle, where none of the pie is sexuality. Somehow humans are these sexual beings. And that's another way that the church often comes across. We never talk about sex, ever. We just go around pretending like sex isn't even a thing. We just say, well, not before marriage and not outside of marriage. That's it. But overwhelmingly, in this hypersexualized culture, Scripture says, listen to this, Scripture says that human sexuality is integral to our collective humanity. Right? It's, it's who we are, Genesis 1, where we, we're, we're persons who are male and female, and we reproduce, and it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. But even as it's essential to our collective humanity, it's not essential to our individual identity. And let me give you an example. If I were to ask you to list the persons in your life who have had the biggest impact, positive impact, the people that have meant the most to you, 
who shaped you, helped you to be what you are today? Let me ask you, sorry, it's a crude question, but with how many of them have you had sex? And even with those you had, was it the sexual dimension that made it such a great relationship? Was it that aspect that really made the difference and made them contribute, contribute so much to your life? The answer is no. See, we live in a culture today, as Rebecca McLaughlin observes, is in modern society, we are led to believe that we cannot live without sex. Right? In fact, she says, I believe we are more likely to wither without friend or family love. It's just so important that we see that Scripture, Scripture is calling us away from seeing ourselves exclusively or primarily in terms of our sexuality, whether that sexuality is homosexual, straight, whatever it may be. It's calling us away to seeing ourselves in that manner. Now, let me just say a few more things. I know the hour is getting long. Let me say a few more things here. Homosexuality as an issue in the church today is actually quite complex. Some of us may think it is rather black and white. Oh, this is, is it more? Is it right or is it wrong? But it's actually quite complex. And the reason it's complex are for three reasons. First, the social factor. The social factor. The, there, is, there, is, there is an explicitly social dimension to human sexuality. Okay, that means that sexual sin, but especially all kinds of non-heterosexual sin, they have social ramifications that are far more immediate and obvious than those of other sins. Let me give you a contrast. Let's, say a, let's consider a father who never expresses any affection to his children. Will that have major social consequences? Absolutely, but it's going to take decades. Right? It's going to take time for that to show up. In contrast to that, a, you know, a sexual sin, the social consequences are immediate. It's immediate. In fact, from the time a person first recognizes that they are attracted to the same sex, which can be very young, somewhere in their, you know, from, uh, uh, from eight, you know, somewhere between uh, uh, early, mid-early digits, uh, single digits to uh, teenage years, when they come to that realization, it quite simply rocks their social world in a way that few other sins do. Do you see what I'm saying? That the social implications to sexual sin, especially uh, homosexual sin, are so vast. And should a person become a Christian, the social consequences are even more cataclysmic, right? Because chances are they're going to have to leave a lot of the non-Christian uh, circle of relationships that they had and then try to become a participant, a congregant, in a local Christian church, which, as Aaron testified today, is an extremely difficult thing to do. And so you may say, look, what's the big deal? It's just, it's wrong. It's like, no, wait a minute, time out. The social implications of this particular struggle are different than, than so often many of the struggles I have. If I'm angry, I mean, that can be difficult socially, but I'm still going to have friends, I'm still going to have a family, I'm still going to have whatever. It's just not going to impact my life in the same way. So that's the first thing that I think that complicates it. We don't understand that idea that, in fact, hey, listen, the, the, the social implications are different and more, and, and more immediate than other sins. Second, the historical factor. This is just so important. Okay, just give me a chance here. Uh, the historical factor, with... With the rise of the impact of modern psychology on the way that the church addresses sin in general, 
but especially homosexual sin. There was an entire movement that you, you or I, as, as straight persons, might not know of at all. But that movement, um, that influence of secular psychology that in many ways had some positive impacts, had overwhelmingly a negative impact on how the church thought or ministered to persons who had this struggle. And so starting in the late 80s uh, through the 90s uh, uh, into the 2000s, the, the degree to which the church saw homosexuality as something that could be readily cured, something that could be readily fixed, was overwhelming. And so that in contrast to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where you had persons like C.S. Lewis, persons like Billy Graham, uh, persons like uh, John Stott, uh, I mean, people of that caliber who were saying, listen, this is, no, this is not right. But that doesn't mean that we can expect change like that. It may mean there are persons will be celibate for the rest of their life. We want to care for these persons, not cure them. You got you with me? That if a person decides to follow Jesus and to live their lives in obedience to him, and they don't go on to have a family, don't go on to have marry, marry and have kids, that's okay. It's astonishing. I mean, think of it this way, gang. How many of you know who yourselves or you know others who are alcoholics and they have gotten clean? And would we ever say to them, listen, until you're able to drink just, you know, responsibly, whenever you want to by yourself with friends or whatever, you don't, you're not really a Christian. No, what do we say? Well, you've been dry for how long? Or you've only had a, this few re relapses? That's amazing. Praise God. Right? We're not sitting there expecting them to have this right relationship with alcohol. Or take, take pornography, right? How many of us go, well, yeah, unless you stop like, looking at porn for like just ever, obviously you don't really care about being a Christian. Or for how many of us think about anxiety? And say, so, you know what? If you really follow Jesus seriously, you should be this relaxed, confident person. And we say, wow, you've gone this many days without an anxiety attack. Praise the Lord. And so, the, again, understanding, listen, you know, Aaron shared with it about his story, understanding how deeply, even if, even if the church may get the ethical question right, caring for the person who's, who has this struggle has been a disaster. It's been a complete disaster. I mean, it was just so hard for me to hear Aaron speak of him opening up his heart, his life, to, to church leaders only to be completely shut down, only to be treated differently. And that is because of the influence of a, of a form of psychology, that, again, that has in some ways some real strengths, but in many ways taught us, taught church leaders to cure rather than to care. Okay, so just one, one, more, uh, one more dimension here that I want, to, uh, I want to bring up here. And that is this, and I, I hope that you saw this in a little bit in Aaron's story, but one of the things that we are seeing, and I don't know the exact time from, I would say the last 15, 20 years, we are seeing in an amazing way God, through his spirit, reach out to gay persons, men and women, and subdue their hearts, fill them with grace, and enable them to be some of the most uh, valuable members of the people of God. 
and amazing emissaries to a Christian world. And I want you to see, and again, this is just so important, so often, you know, for Paul in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of, what, he describes the community of faith as the body of Christ. And he says, yes, that he drives home this idea that every member of the body of Christ is essential. And why does he do that? Why does he have to tell us, hey, every single one of you is essential? You know why? Because you and I, we rank people. We see Sally over here, and yeah, it can be better if Sally stopped coming. Right? And we see, we see Joe over here, and we think, Joe, is, he's the man. And like, he is like the best Christian ever, and like, we need Joe here. Right? But Paul says that every single Christian, regardless of their story, because of their unique stories, because of their struggle, is essential. And he makes this point, again, because we, you and I, we're so ready to, to, to grade other Christians. And Paul even says this. He says, how much more true is it that the parts of the body that seem to us to be weaker, he says, are in fact indispensable. And it's been my own personal experience my own personal pastoral experience, that I have found this to be so incredibly true of the gay Christians, or whatever word you want to use, that they're the Christians who, who are in my congregation, who this is, their, this is their experience, this is their story. They have had a disproportionate impact in, their, in, in, in living lives of faithfulness to Jesus. And it would be, let me just, and I'll close with this, it would be completely wrong to think that gay people out, out there, our gay, non-Christian friends, family, are somehow less interested in the gospel. In fact, as one, uh, one author, in fact, um, Aaron's, uh, Aaron's pastor, Greg, uh, recently has got a forthcoming book in which he writes this. He says this, We have a culture that tells the gay young man what the good life looks like. You experiment sexually in your teens, you let men buy you drinks in bars. You spend way too much time in the gym trying to build the body that will make you lovable. Gay people excel in every field, driven by a never-ending need to accomplish more, to be successful enough to become lovable. We decorate, we gay men decorate our lives to poster over our shame in the hope that we will one day become lovable. And when those efforts fail us, we turn to drugs and alcohol to self-medicate. And Greg says this, no community in the world longs so strongly for what the gospel alone can give. Is that your attitude to gay coworkers, neighbors, whatever, that maybe they actually long in their heart of hearts, they don't know it, and they're terrified of the church, they're terrified of Christians, understandably so, right? But maybe in their heart of hearts, they long most for what, the, for what the gospel alone can give. Thank you for your patience. But I just thought there was an issue is during the summer, the denomination, I wanted to talk about it briefly. There's so much more that we could say, but I wanted this morning to, uh, to share a little bit about it. So let's, let's bow our heads, and we will, uh, we will uh, to our closing song.